So, hello, uh, welcome to uh, a sort of Sublation Magazine live discussion, uh, which we're recording for people to listen to later, uh, with one of the um, authors whose articles has done the best, and you won't be su surprised probably to hear James uh, over recent months, um, and I mean, James Smith is um, a lecturer at Royal Holloway University London, and uh, a sort of Lacanian and Marxist uh, writer interested in all sorts of things, but especially the like relationship between politics and contemporary discourse and stuff. Um, he's written a great book called Other People's Politics, which came out with zero books, um, and um, and loads of other things. Writing in uh, I don't know everywhere, uh, Jacobin, uh, Navarra wherever else everywhere of those kind of leftist places although i think those places are shit now <laughs> but at the time it felt good Mo them. most recently <laughs> appearing in sublation magazine most recently appearing in sublation magazine mm -hmm. and no but it is interesting how i i'm now convinced that navarro is like responsible for the corbyn failure and, and those people like bastani and ash Sarkar are like part of the reason why the corbyn project failed and stuff but anyway that's that's massive for another time i'm <laughs> 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 not sure we want to open that open with that on tape no, well no, let's leave that in there so a little, a little taste <laughs> but no uh james has written everywhere and, and really interesting stuff and um yeah th but this article is also like close to the history of sublation and 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 to zero books and stuff as well so my own story is like uh that i published a book with zero books um when it was uh run by mark fisher and a couple of other cretins um uh and um uh, then I became part of it with Doug Lane and and uh, the kind of continuation of Zero and, and now Sublation and so on. Um, so, but but of course, like Mark Fisher um, is this kind of yeah interesting kind of history of Zero books and and therefore I guess to a, in, a, in an indirect way of Sublation and also this kind of figure of tension between different people who um, you know. And I, I was thinking about this again this week with Mari Ruti, a friend of mine who died, who's like a Lacanian writer and, and has had been a very supportive person to me, like the way people sort of grab a dead person and, and discuss a dead person. Yeah. There's all this going on with um, Mark Fisher's, um, you know, very unfortunate death and, and uh, the way that he's subsequently been grabbed and used by different political forces and so on. But but in, in, in a reason why I'm saying all this is that James's um, most recent Sublation magazine article is called Capitalist Realism All Over Again. And I think also, uh, yeah, it, it looks at what um, situation we're in politically today and how we would understand the kind of iconic concepts of capitalist realism um, in the context of, of, of politics today. And this is something that both James and I have been um, writing about and thinking about i guess since that that happened i'm not maybe not quite since it happened i think capitalist realism if i remember rightly probably came out in about 2009 um and i i remember doing something in uh i think it was some some i think it was also on your recommendation james for lse review of books i think a friend of yours was yeah. uh, and i wrote something about how uh you know capitalist realism in around i'd say around 2014 capitalist realism was no longer uh valid because um, you know, Fisher's concept is that capitalism has this ability to smooth over all of its cracks. And I perceived at that time that there were so many cracks that, that, that they couldn't be smoothed over. So you start seeing things like Trump and, and you start seeing the Sanders and Corbyn movement. And I remember writing this thing that, well, capitalist realism isn't re relevant in 2014 or whatever, because 
uh, you know, capitalism has failed to keep papering over its cracks or whatever in the way that it had done. And I, I guess I thought there was a kind of hopefulness in that situation. But then now, of course, now we're looking at this in 2023, and it, it seems very much like the cracks have been papered over again, and so on. So I guess I'm giving two kind of overlapping introductions to what James's article is about and what this discussion is about. Like, on the one hand, it's about Mark Fisher and, and how his legacy is there and what, what that means, what we can do with this concept today. But it's also the history of um, the left and it's, it's, its last decade and a half or whatever, uh, where we've been through these kind of stages of thinking about uh, what are the cracks in the system and will they be taken advantage of and by whom and so on. And this is really your interest, I think, in looking back at like Mark Fisher's concept and the the post-Fisher, the, the, the history of capitalism that's happened actually since that book uh, and how it looks, uh, you know, backwards from there. Would you, would you say that's a sort of fair way of describing what you're doing here? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I had uh, a, a hand in... Um, those early publications that you did for Zero Books when Mark Fisher was running it. I mean, I, I have to admit, I was barely aware of him at the time. We had in Manchester sort of come to maybe something of a similar technique and similar set of references um, to Fisher by our own quite different routes. Of course, when I did read Capitalist Realism, I, I was enormously impressed. Um, and... Uh, yeah, then, like you, uh, um, when the long 2016 arrived, um, I, that was the first of the sort of reappraisals. I, I refer in the piece to the, the the fact that such has been the sort of whiplash experience of being on the left in the last 15 years, uh, that many of us are on our second reappraisal of this book already. The first reappraisal, as you say, was, was when Trump, Brexit, Corbyn, Sanders, the populisms of the right and left uh, arrived uh, and provided all of these shocks to the smooth running of um, austerity economics with a limited social liberalism. Uh, and yeah, in my 2016 book, Other People's Politics, I opened that book with a very similar tone to your LSE review of books piece, saying that the left are scared, as many people were, of uh, the the the, so, the supposed rise of the far right, of Trump, um, and uh, and Farage, etc. Uh, really, this needed to be recognised as an opportunity and grasped as an opportunity. The same suspension of realism that had allowed these political impossibilities to come true, um, that that had kind of that had opened the the doorway or the wormhole through which the Benjaminian tiger's leap could be taken by uh, a left just as much as it had been by the right. Um, mm. Fisher gave a sort of a tone and a vibe to Corbynism in the UK. Uh, there was something about his combination of streetwise popular culture references, um, which while it was possible to interpret them as sort of borrowed or copied from Zizek, there was much more of a sort of fan's relationship to the popular culture materials that Fisher used to refer to. Of course, Zizek admits that he rarely actually watches the Hollywood movies that he comments on, and I'm not really aware of him ever talking about popular music, whereas Fisher really cared and, and really did engage in, in a, a very first-hand and authentic fan's 
and that was one of his words, fans um, way with popular culture. So um, uh, that this kind of magpie openness about the different traditions of the left's past, he was not um, a, a, a card-carrying member of any particular political sect, although he collaborated with people who were, that political omnivorousness and that streetwise popular culture connectedness all flowed into the dominant tones of um, both the the student anti-fees movement, the anti-cuts movement, and the rise of Corbynism uh, that followed from them. So it, it's possible to refer to Mark Fisher as the patron intellectual of the left during that time. Um, in my own work, the, the other book I did at the same time as other people's politics, Work Want Work, co-written with Mariah Fannebecker, um, that engaged with another intellectual thread that Fisher had opened up for the left at the time, which came not so much from capitalist realism, but from the subsequent drafts and first tries and attempts and posts that Fisher made, trying to offer the alternative that he'd said had been foreclosed upon in capitalist realism, his work on acid communism, uh, this return to new left, utopian, hippie-ish tones of possibility and psychedelia. Uh, it was very common for the, the left, especially the sort of Gen X left, to look scornfully back on the 60s new left, to see it as um, a, a kind of a bunch of sellouts with... Uh, kind of crap popular culture uh, that was all kind of Woodstock and acid and, and um, naive optimism. Where did that lead? Fisher said there needed to be a reassessment of that 60s new left, and there were things that could still be taken from it, uh, not least the fact that um, that was a world prior to capitalist realism, a world before the victory of the neoliberals, a world before the closing down of all these different possible utopias. So that's the first thing I'd say about the, the relevance of Fisher to both the Corbyn experience and to um, my own sort of recent intellectual work. Um, sorry, what I meant to say was that Work Won't Work was a, a kind of response to the way that that acid communism, post-workism, utopianism uh, was being carried into the Corbyn um, world by things like Nick Cernick and, and Alex Williams inventing the future, and subsequently Aaron Bastani's fully automated luxury communism, Helen Hester's xenofeminism, Sophie Lewis's uh, related work on family abolition. All of these, it seems to be, were attempts to kind of pick up Fisher's invitation that we should go back to um, un unfinished and unresolved um, ambitions and utopias from the 60s. Work Won't Work was both a kind of contribution to that. We were keeping an open mind, but also something of a critique of it uh, uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot here to, to sort of discuss and pick up a question of what the left is and where it is, because the, one of the things I, I noticed in what you said is this interesting point about the new left of the 60s and why that needed a certain kind of critique or whatever. Um, and I think that's important. And I think, you know, I mean, I've always thought of that as and, and the other another sort of relevant thing there is the relationship between 68 and the left and, you know, whether this this kind of, I don't know, six, six, May 68 inspired left has, has got everything all wrong by going for this kind of like 
uh, you know, questions of freedom and and so on. And and I, I think it's quite interesting that um, uh, this this kind of repeated itself, I guess, in in the what two thousands or late two thousands or whatever, where you've got this uh, this this kind of generation, as you say, which is. I mean, it isn't just those ones you mentioned, like, uh, I don't know who just mentioned Sophie Lewis and, and I mean, hopefully, and uh, who else there? Sir Nick Williams, Helen Hester. Bastani, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then, but then, of course, also the, there's a whole other, like, kind of that blog generation, like, which really goes for, like, Jodie Dean or whatever, Mark Fisher, uh, others that made their names through that in, in smaller ways. There, there was this kind of, like, another kind of 68 that happened in 2009 or something and it divides people i think i and i think it, it took things the wrong way i don't know what you think but in terms of like the history of the left here like didn't didn't another may 68 happen in 2009 or whatever where basically uh you know what the pro the so what i mean there is that the problem with may 68 was that it associated this kind of libidinal questions of freedom and um you know liberation and so on with um and desire that it associated with this with progressive politics or whatever and it it led into it had also some positive uh impacts like queer theory or whatever but in general what it did was it associated the left with a kind of um yeah like an oppositional thinking that was based on you know yeah ideas of libidinal ideas of investing in concepts of freedom liberation and so on whereas in fact my criticism of that would be that and 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 would be the criticism that many like you know it's a Zizek, it's a psychoanalytics from Ladin Dola point or whatever that psychoanalysis has criticized uh this May 68 situation for precisely the opposite thing would be the best path for the left to take, right? We need rules, we need structures, we need materialist approaches to organization or whatever, which 68 kind of you know pushed people towards this kind of libidinal uh investment in ideas of freedom and liberation rather than in producing the formal structures that constitute a leftist society or whatever i think that's probably the, the, the a quick summary of all those and i guess i'm asking whether maybe something like this happened in in 2009 also where um you know and and with this it relates also to the previous discussion like about the cracks in capitalist realism and so on the, the bit of investment in trump sanders corbyn and i think they do belong in, in a list together those people because it, it seemed yeah. also like a, a 68 moment like there was libidinal investment in this possible future which seemed like a breaking of capitalist realism whatever but what does that look like now or was that the left going wrong or or, or you know yeah um maybe to save us sort of jumping around on the dates should we refer to the long 2016 um <laughs> begins with the 2008 crash and culminates with the 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 defeats within uh, the space of 12 months of of 13 months of Corbyn Sanders and Trump um yeah the the okay 68 um yeah the so the, the Zizek critique is that um is that this sort of embrace or fetishizing of the libidinal was a, a misrecognition of 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 how you would build a revolutionary society, and 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 that was already there in Lacan's famous scathing remark about the the sixty eight protesters looking for a new father, um, and they'll find it. Um, I th I think that that's all all fair, but really, what what I would say the mistake of sixty eight was that that, that it, it sealed its fate when it agreed to the retreat from class when it um ha had all of these fantastic uh, and and 
energized and and eye-opening ways of reconceiving the future and its possibility, but absolved itself of the need to get consent from the working class uh, in order to see it through. When when as soon as you start, um, it's extremely important to break with realism. It's extremely important to um, embrace the libidinal. But as soon as you start making excuses for why you don't have to um, seduce anyone to stay with the libido, uh, as soon as you make excuses for why you don't have to get the people on side with you, uh, you're you're doomed, and it's right that you're doomed, and you're worse than doomed. Your utopian vision will be seized upon by the victorious elites when you when you inevitably are defeated, and will be used in the service of an even more exploitative regime. That that's the story of '68 that's told by among among other people by Nancy Fraser. Uh, she's talking about second wave feminism specifically, but I think the critique applies to the entire 60s new left. What were their criticisms? Their criticisms was that uh, the capitalism of the post-war period was androcentric. It was focused on men and the male wage earner. It was economic reductionist. It only cared about saying, you know, competing parties would only uh, uh, care that they had raised wages or raised... Um, raised living standards, they didn't have anything to say about other forms of um, liberation, such as racial, sexual, uh, uh, gender, etc. Um, the, the, the new left of that time criticised capitalism because it was too technocratic and too managed by the state. And they also criticised it because it was too nationalist. Now, for as long as it looked like the wind was in the sails of the left, for as long as it looked like you were going to have this toppling of capitalist governments across Europe, you were going to have this um, massive racial awakening in America following the civil rights movement. For as long as it looked like listening to the Beatles and the Grateful Dead was going to uh, free the mind and, and, and politics would follow, it was all very well making those critiques of capitalism. The problem is that these same people regarded the working class, the masses, the people as flat-topped squares who just had to be got away from rather than people who had to be brought along with this utopian promise or these utopian arguments. And so the 68ers inevitably were defeated and lost, but they had created these utopian energies. They had created these critiques of capitalism, which were then taken over wholesale by the neoliberals. The neoliberals uh, who would feed into Chile would feed into Thatcher's Britain, would feed into Reagan's America, were all perfectly happy to agree with the new left that the problem with post-war capitalism was it just wanted to raise wages. It privileged the, the male single wage earner and, and supported a traditional family. They were happy to critique um, the nationalism of the post-war consensus. Yeah, let's have globalization. And they were happy to critique um, the technocracy of um, the state's managed industries of that time. Yeah, we'll privatize them. So in other words, the new left uh, uh, created the circumstances where it would be defeated. And then worse, it lent its powers to the more exploitative version of capitalism that came afterwards. And yeah, I have said in Jacobin that the new new left, the millennial left, needs to be highly um, cognizant of 
that critique and that fate of the old new left. I think that it is fair to say that we had a kind of renaissance of left thought in the long 2016. Uh, we went from there being no real left intelligentsia, apart from a few boomers hanging around the New Left Review and the London Review of Books, to having this extraordinary um, uh, vital culture where it seemed like every other uh, young person was getting a Verso book for Christmas, where it seemed like every week an interesting new thinker was coming along or an interesting new platform was being devised. Um, so we we did have that, that new left uh, acid openness and utopianism and that was that was that was crucial to the successes of left populism in that period that we we shouldn't minimize that as a an ingredient of the 2017 near miss near victory for corbyn but it didn't go hand in hand with an with the necessary populist conviction about bringing the working class with you and responding to what their demands might be and so it was totally fatal to have on the one hand, yeah, we're going to have water fountains that have sparkling water. We're going to have free <laughs> broadband for all. We're going Ooh, to um, outsourcing ha ha have free <laughs> university, et cetera, et cetera. All of that was great. But for as long as it went hand in hand with the absolutely fatal um, mistrust of the people that was the remain would drift, the abandonment of Brexit, Brexit was a was an absolute gift from the gods because it was a simple um, yes no answer. Do you trust the working class? Yes no answer. Are you going to um, prove that the left has changed from being this aloof guardian reading um, uh, uh, graduate's eccentricity and it's serious about being um, uh, uh, the the political agent of the people. Brexit was a once-in-a-lifetime gift. You could just say, yes, we're going to do Brexit. Yes, we're committed to Brexit. It didn't matter what you'd voted for in 2016. You could say that. And as long as you said that, you had that golden proof that you weren't just um, a another new left utopian or revival act. You were tying it, unlike last time round, to an absolute conviction and trust in the people. But we didn't do that. So the the the, the first point is that the millennial left did suffer the same fate as the 60s new left. I, of course, I don't underestimate all of the things that were stacked against it and all of the dirty tricks that were played against it. But ultimately, it, on and it's not only Brexit, on, on issue after issue, there was this residual mistrust of the people that meant that it was never able to um, position itself as their historical actor and political geist voice and so on as for that second part of the fate of the new left where it inadvertently lent its powers and its cultural cachet and its frames of thought to an even more exploitative new regime that followed its defeat well that's what the article is about yeah Exactly. And I mean, well, I want to ask some specific questions about the article, but I also want to pick on a couple of things you just said, because I think, well, OK, I don't quite know that you, you, said, you said a lot of things. Um, but I mean, one of the things I wanted to, well, OK, I want to firstly talk about something you just said about, um, well, I, I guess the populism question is important here, but also, OK, so let's start with that. Like, you, that because that's been a, a major sort of strand in your in your work, in your books and everything. And in this article as well, you you talk about this kind of, um, you know, 
the response to populism, you know, um, not being explained by capitalist realism or whatever. So, um, you know, when people like Farage appear or you get UKIP and so on, um, you know, do is that then yes is that capitalist realism obviously not you know or, when, or i think what kind of what you exactly said but like when boris said fuck business or well, whatever. Uh, yeah yeah but boris is the boris quote is fuck business the farage oh. quote is there's more to life than money uh, um th- this is in response to the critiques that there the critiques yeah. that corbynism got as well that there'd be capital flights following brexit that there would be this you know instantaneous financial meltdown incidentally that was remain fake news uh, as much as leave got accused of fake news and as much as it it did fake news um you know that we forget the the hysteria of uh, of the remain campaign and yeah those the, the, those responses from those nominally right wing populist figures were, there was a, there was a, a certain anti capitalism of the right okay yeah. you know that maybe some of them wanted the, in the long run this libertarian um uh, uh, hypercapitalism, but in in terms of what of how you're supposed to do capitalism right now, this was anti-capitalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what's interesting about that is, and as this is your, I mean, I, I really want to talk about utopianism on the left and stuff, and and the, but but let just to, still to talk about this for a bit more. What's interesting about that in relationship to your history of work and stuff is that you're not necessarily redeeming populism for the left but you are saying that the left has misunderstood populism would that be a fair way to put it so you know because this capitalist realism is a hinge for that really because your your standard mark fisher approach would be well it's just capitalist realism but actually it wasn't and that's where you see this kind of flaring up and and, an interesting thing on this would be the phrase red brown right which Mm -hmm. became a sort of slur term like oh, this person's red-brown, became among the sort of leftist liberal circle, something you could say to someone who was too... But actually, if I think if I've understood it correctly, your arguments, if you understand populism properly, instead of squashing it into this kind of... Uh, this this rise of populism that happened in, as you put it, the long 2016, you need to think differently about uh, the relationship between the left and the right and it, uh, for once of being I don't want to be too sort of controversial but to me it seems a red brown position is way more appealing than a pure you, you know utopian leftist position because at least it acknowledges the fact that there is a, a, a sort of rupture here or whatever in political discourse and the right and the left are taking advantage of it in certain ways in during the long 2016 and the tragedy, I suppose, is that, you know, that's over. Would that be? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. There's, mm, there's a few ways to go at that. Um, because, yeah, as much as, as this has been your question for a long time, it, it, it's been mine as well. Well, okay. Um, firstly, yeah, it, it, w- it is a very bad idea for the left to get... It's always getting tempted into having these two roles. The first role is getting people to be on the left and getting um, the, uh, uh, the, the the maximum downward redistribution of wealth and power, and then ideally um, a communist world of um, you know fr- from each according according to their ability to each according to their need. That's its first job, but it's always getting 
sucked into doing this other job. And that other job is policing the excesses of the right. Um, there's plenty of reasons for this connected to the fate of the new left. When um, the left in the 20th century ceased to be able to say that it really represented the working class anymore, when the working class, for all kinds of reasons, uh, stopped identifying with the organised left, then it had to find other things to do with its time. And one of the big ones was anti-racism. And that was often successful. Things were a lot less racist now uh, in Britain, say, than they were uh, when this was embarked upon in the 1970s. But that leaves us in a in a, a very structurally tricky position, because if your two jobs are one, bringing about um, the communist future, and also policing um, wicked, illegitimate political actors, then you're always getting kind of backed into the corner of defending the status quo. And really, for there to be a left, you have to have the courage to say, it's not my job to um, call out uh, naughty people online. It's not my job to um, try to get Jordan Peterson banned from Penguin Books. It's not my job to police uh, illegitimate actors in the cultural sphere on behalf of the liberal, neoliberal, um, reactionary blob of mainstream politics. You, you can only get the hearing that you need to get from dissidents, skeptics, and cynics of all stripes if you're not perceived as the guardians of the status quo. And that was why um, the Remainwood drift in Corbynism was so fatal. That was why, as Michael Tracy and Angela Nagel pointed out in, for me, the definitive uh, critique of the Bernie movement, it was so fatal that Bernie people got into Russiagate critiques or got into saying that Trump was this uniquely evil president and had to be defeated at all costs as soon as you start like getting sucked into doing that second job you basically abandon the first so yeah what people call red brownism i mean that there is that there's barely a red and there's barely a brown basically everything is just kind of shades of liberal really once you scratch the aesthetics off but yeah what 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 those kind of left liberals who accused one of being a red brown if you weren't like over the moon about joe biden winning the presidency in 2020 or if you supported brexit or uh, any of the other issues and there's been more uh, come along since what they really meant was that you were refusing to be a good senior prefect and do your job of telling off the naughty illegitimate actors who were critiquing the status quo in the wrong way. If you said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm too focused on pursuing my finite objectives. And I'm absolutely not interested in denigrating and denouncing and, and, and cancelling whole swathes of people when their politics may well are in flux. If, if 2016 proved anything, should have proven anything to both the left and the right. It's that people's politics really are subject to change and can change very rapidly indeed. Yeah. And I mean, 
yeah i mean again you've said things i want to pick up on but i also want to discuss this other thing which i think is important which is the relationship between the left and utopianism maybe we can circle back on all mm -hmm. this but one of the things you were saying yeah. there before was that you know and this this goes right actually it's sort of been running through this whole conversation because you were talking about sophie lewis and aaron bastani luxury communism and so on you know we talked about the taps and, and whatever the you, sparkling water tap and a, a sort of womb for hire or whatever they're all part of um you know a, a sort of idea of the left which is to do with utopianism and to me it seems uh that the probably the primary way in which the left has gone wrong and, and all or i like the way you put it with the the sort of first principles um are x essentially marxism then it gets led into uh you know identity politics or whatever which you know to be more direct about that i think it's like yeah th this is the you know, paint, paint a pride flag instead of changing the actual conditions for workers or whatever, you know, th th this kind of model can describe where the left went wrong and how the left ended up supporting uh, things that are very much not in its material interests, but which are in its aesthetic world or whatever. And I'd say that all of this has to do with a turn the left took towards utopianism. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that it's absolutely impossible uh, to be utopian and leftist. I think utopianism is just death drive or, um, you know, you can't, you can't have a utopian left project because as you, and maybe as you put it in the, in the previous part of the discussion, um, all those things get sort of baked in the oven of elite capitalism and repackaged or whatever, which is maybe where it comes back to capitalist realism you know, Nirvana, for example, or one of Mark Fisher's examples or whatever, where, you know, they, they thought they were doing some utopian leftist project, but it it just gets cooked into X or Y. Sort yeah. of onto what you were saying. So I guess my question to you is, isn't it utopianism that the left has to give up? And that's what's wrong with Bastani, Lewis, even Helen Hester and uh, fully uh, and, and, and Sir Check and Williams, you know, isn't that where that left of the 2000 and, or the long 2016 went wrong to utopian? Yes, um, I see. My gambit would be that in, in times of left ascendancy, you do need a certain measure of utopianism. And then as soon as you lose or you find yourself on the on the downward slope, um, as we have done, you have to absolutely pack it in and, and make a, an immediate course correction. Uh, how can I explain that? Well, to, to defend for a moment the utopianism of those sort of Corbyn and Bernie world um, organic intellectuals, they... Um, to, I think to understand the appeal of them now, you have to reconstruct and remember the exact reason why Fisher's capitalist realism was so appealing and so successful. It's very tone. It's it, the, the, there are I don't have it in front of me, but there, there's a there's just it's even there in the sentence structure a certain kind of bathos and a certain kind of interruption and disappointment that's there even at the level of the prose that captured 
something about the the pre twenty fifteen, the pre Corbyn, pre Bernie um, uh, uh, life world, where everything seems so constrained and so constricted, everything seems to be falling apart. Um, in Britain, the coalition government was just so um, appalling and there was just no meaningful space of critique for it. Uh, and the, the role of the Labour Party, and I did join the Labour Party under Ed Miliband, um, uh, uh, but the, the, the role of the, the Labour Party was so clearly that of keeping out of discourse any alternative possibility. Following that absolutely miserable phase of the of 2010 to to, uh, to to 2015, I think that it actually took that kind of overcorrection of this utopian of this genre of utopian literature to break people out of those of, of those dogmatic slumbers and to make you realize that you could demand the impossible as as someone says in the um in the chat that you you could be arguing for something like the corbyn program it's popular on the left to say or it's popular among the kind of rump corbynistas to say oh this would be perfectly ordinary in in uh, scandinavia or this was a moderate and modest social democratic program this was the bare minimum etc cetera, etc cetera. but that, that's to totally misrepresented it was totally exhilarating when the 2017 manifesto was leaked it was completely exhilarating to be knocking on people's doors and saying yeah this this is what we're going to do and and yes this is possible that that was you know, people who didn't feel how special that was in 2017 hadn't knocked on doors for the Labour Party in 2015. That's all I can say. So it, I don't, I can't really see it happening without a certain utopian strand in it. Where it becomes a problem is in exactly that pattern I described and, and cited Nancy Fraser on for the New Left. Where it becomes a problem is when you're when it's clear that you're no longer going to win. And that this formation of the left has been consigned to history. If you continue with that utopianism after that, then very bad actors, or at least just actors who are quite contrary to your aims, are going to take up those energies and those figures of, of thought um, and those uh, dynamics, and they are going to apply them to their own ends. I, I, I couldn't give a clearer example than the way that many um, recently defeated Corbynistas immediately took to COVID-19 as if it were going to deliver Corbynism by other means. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't particularly want to criticise them, but it, it is very telling that Navarra Media grew massively during the, uh, during the COVID period, that COVID was better for Navarra than Corbyn was. And what was their role during COVID? It was simply to say that whatever measures the government were pursuing, they weren't enough. And that if the mainstream media were saying that Boris Johnson, oh, isn't the Guardian saying that maybe Boris Johnson isn't up to the job, maybe he's listening to some bad advisors, then Navarra's job was to say that he's committing genocide or that he was committing social murder. So it, it, was, it became the role of the post-Corbyn left to... Um, 
make to to continue to sort of make these arguments we're going to be even more anti-tory than we were before we're going to demand an even more massive transformation of society than we ever imagined under corbyn there's gonna everyone's gonna stop working uh we're going to completely transform uh the whole nature of society and the economy in reaction to covid um but with no political agency or figureheads or power and no hope of ever obtaining power in um the medium term um that th that was only going to be lending yourself as a sort of propagandist for whatever voices within um the powers that be uh were pursuing whatever the who wanted whatever the civil service wanted whatever um the uh the 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 liberal side of uh, the establishment wanted to pursue whatever bill gates wanted to pursue so um yeah i i, I mean i appreciate that this is contentious and maybe i don't know maybe or maybe not we need to bracket the actual argument yes i am a lockdown skeptic yes i do think that uh so much that happened during covid was absolutely disastrous was an absolute putting back in the box of the populist energies and the heterodoxy of the long 2016 it was a complete evisceration and destruction of the idea held on the right and on the left that things should be more democratic it established a norm where things could be absolutely less democratic you could short circuit democracy whenever you wanted to and we're seeing that in all kinds of areas of life now and the left took the utopianism and took the the brilliant communication that it had developed during the corbyn period and it lent it all to that with no hope whatsoever of getting a thing out of it well i mean i don't think it's contentious in this conversation because i i agree with you and i don't i don't um but but i i thought more contentious was that you wanted to defend the utopianism of the left because mm -hmm. i don't think it's acceptable to say you know, robots will will be the new incubators of babies, or you know, we'll have uh, sparkling water taps. Or sure, I, but I, where do you where do you draw the line, though? I guess the thing is that in twenty seventeen, saying that you wanted to abandon student fees, which had been every government's policy until um, you know fifteen or so years ago, saying that you wanted to um, uh, take water into public ownership these which obviously seem to us no-brainers that they, they or at least totally plausible um these seemed like exhilarating utopian kind of claims so i i guess you know everyone's you know one person's utopia is another person's um basic demand but i interrupted yeah. please well, well i mean that that's that no it's a good interruption but but um the the question of a basic demand versus utopian thinking is also about libidinal, your libidinal investment in the things you're after and so on. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, I, you know, this also can be contentious, but I don't think that um, painting pride flags in universities is is part of the, a, a, you know, a future of the left. Or whatever. And I think that's because of utopian thinking. I don't think it's because, and I think mm. structurally it is because it's not, it's not, you know, one of the things I feel annoying uh, is that this phrase identity politics, right, which is usually used by leftists who are tempted by the ideas of the right, but don't want to quite go there, right, which goes back to the red-brown thing or whatever. 
that many of our friends fall into this category and so on. But the problem with this way of thinking about it is that this isn't actually what we're dealing with. This is like, and, and nothing annoys me more than like someone sort of courting that sort of discourse, like being like, oh, you know, perhaps I'll be cancelled because I actually like marriage or something. But I think that the, mm -hmm. the point should, we should be able to clarify these things and say that, so my, my argument that the utopianism is where the left has gone wrong is an attempt to clarify, you know, I'm not on either side of this culture war. I don't want to be at woke or anti-woke, but where I do think we can specifically say, and it's, my, it's, one of, it's an attempt to describe where in fact there is a, a thing to fight over or whatever. And, and, so, and I think it's, uh, obviously I'm in a sense um, biased by my own sort of history of scholarship and thinking and so on. But like, I think that the libidinal investment in, politics is both exactly what we needed and exactly where we went wrong and I think we've discussed mm. this and worked together on these things before so the fact that Trump captured the public imagination and the fact that Corbyn did the fact that Sanders did and so on this is really a populism question I guess it it showed yeah. that politics could be libid and we all know this started with 2008 which you said was the start of the long 2016 with Obama's election. It was the first to be a libidinal election. The yes, we can was the first kind of libidinal. Let's make something happen by sheer force of will. But mm. of course, the problem is things don't happen by sheer force of will. And that is where utopian enter, utopianism enters the discourse. So basically, my argument would be in a nutshell, Obama fucked everything and stopped the left ever becoming possible because it connected libidinal feeling of things are changing with things changing and that's what i think we need yes. to not do yeah i i i agree to an extent um yeah i mean on the libidinal thing um we we could put it this way i, I mean one of one of the one of the things that made Zizek's reputation was his debate with ernesto laclau on Precisely the issue of of populism, uh, and I I mean th this I didn't say it in so many words, but this is kind of what I was getting at in other people's politics that we we need both actually they they were they were both right on slightly different grounds. So for Leclau, um in whatever we want to call it, the the new times, neoliberalism, the end of history, um, whatever term we use to describe the situation since nineteen seventies where. Um, political ideologies and classes no longer correlate with each other. The left no longer straightforwardly speaks for the entire working class, insofar as it ever did. Um, that kind of that that it, it's a symptom of neoliberalism that class interests and ideologies become more and more complex and more and more hard to um, attach to each other. In such a situation where it is extremely difficult to say, okay. I'm the politician of the working class. We are the majority. We are the many. We're all rising up against um, against uh, uh, the bourgeoisie. In that situation, you actually need populism. You need populism because you have to create the people. You can't simply point to it. It's everyone who works in a blue-collar job, anyone who works in a factory. No, you're going to have to perform some act that is going to... Um, gel a people together and um 
Leclerc's um, post-structuralist idiom for this was to talk about signifiers that would that would uh, uh, do this. I, I talk about libido being the necessary um, or, or one of the uh, uh, plausible kind of ways of creating such a, a, a people. Um, and yeah, when you have a, an extremely demobilized working class, when you have very low turnouts in elections, because people very rightly recognize that the parties don't have anything to uh, say to them, when you have very low um, kind of identification with, with traditional political structures like that, you have to find a sort of short circuit. Corbynism was criticized for having a sort of short circuit thinking. You didn't do the work of creating a grassroots movement and political education and so on. You tried to jump straight for the um, for, for, for government. But it, you, you kind of, it was right to, and the, and the, the there isn't actually a, a, a clear way of how to amalgamate um, the, the working class into one in, into one political force right now. Um, if if you're if you're not just kind of you know waiting for Godot on this thing, putting back the revolution uh, until a, a more uh, until more clement political circumstances. If you want to do something now, that it has to be populist, it has to be libidinal, uh, and therefore. In according to your definition, it probably has to have a, a sort of utopian um, dimension to it. All that said, um, it, the thing about these utopian, libidinal, or signifier-based moments of people creation is they've clearly got a very short shelf life. And that is true for Brexit. It is true for Trumpism. Um, it, it is true for Corbynism, it's true for Sandersism. All of these movements, you know, whether or not uh, uh, Trump is going to get elected again, all of these movements have found it very difficult to keep hold of that sort of lightning magic that they had in their moments of ascendancy. Okay, Trump won more vote, many more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, but you know, the, the, these things are often in a kind of dynamic with uh, their antagonist, and, and, and Biden won many more, more than anyone ever ever has. Um, and what what had what had happened in the meantime was a certain kind of focus had been lost. Um, to 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 return to some of the kind of the the linguistic criticisms that you were making, particularly of the influence of Obama's "Yes, we can." I mean, that is very interesting, given that a big part of the Bernie movement was to hold Obama at arm's length and say Obama failed. That's why Bernie. But yeah, I think you're probably right that quite a lot of the dynamics of Bernieism were Obama influenced. Just look at the two Corbyn manifestos. You went from "for the many, not the few." to it's time for real change. You went from the a, a kind of aggressive utopianism that said, fuck you, I wasn't trying to appeal to you anyway. Uh, don't stand in our way. Uh, this is for the many. We're the, we're the party with a small p. We're the ones who are um, you know, having this libidinal time. We are the ones who see the future. And you can either be with that or you can not. You can either be with them, the few, or you can be with us, the many. Oh, you earn more than 80 grand? Yeah, we're coming for that shit. This was aggressive utopianism. Cut forward to 2019. It's time for real change. Well, 
you know, fuck change. Anyone can speak for change. Obama spoke for change. The the I understand that there was polling in 2016 that said that the voters who most wanted change voted for Trump. Um, Brexit was a, a, a kind of uh, a, a demand for change. You know, the thing about change is things could change in ways that you don't want them to change. It's a it's a total depoliticizing euphemism. So yeah, um, the I, th I think the I think that the the nature of the utopianism of the left in the long 2016 went from the kind of utopianism that I do think is necessary and do kind of tolerate and countenance to the kind of malign utopianism that you're describing. And it happened between 2017 uh, and 2019. Yeah, I, I want to end soon, but I I want to do, I want to have one last point here, I guess, which is that, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, no, I th I think you're you're absolutely right about largely what you're saying, and I I do I do really agree. I think the 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 thing about utopianism is interesting because one of the things you're seeing now is how the right has uh, I don't know if you perhaps perhaps I know this in fact James, but like like right right is a bad word for it, but on YouTube for example now the conservatives what they're doing now the conservative YouTube creators are basically giving economic advice like how do I deal with my there's been a boom of channels like Dave Ramsey. Uh, there's like that guy who's on Netflix, uh, Rami, Rami Sangala or whatever his name is. Uh, the, these guys are all basically like uh, economic conservatives and cultural conservatives who are saying like, oh, marriage is the um, correct way to um, deal with <laughs> problems with capitalism. It's a tough world out there. And, and I, I would say this is a sort of in the Jordan Peterson tradition, but it's much more interesting than that because it's actually like saying, well, the non-utopian... So what I'm trying to say to you is the non-utopian thinking comes from the right. It's the right who are getting their fans and followers saying, I'm going to tell you how to actually manage your mortgage repayments, how to actually make sure you're paying off your credit card debt on time and how to still be able to have a quality of life with your partner, your wife, your whatever that you feel is acceptable. And this is a booming industry on the online. Mm -hmm. right. On the other hand, you've got the left saying, wouldn't it be great if, you know, and I, I just feel like this is going to be one of the great failures of this contemporary yeah. left, but it doesn't, it speaks more to utopianism than this practical function of how do we live in this society whereas in you know 50 years ago it would have been the left saying we we've got people who can support you actually in 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 managing your finances or whatever better how has that happened that the yeah uh yeah i i, th I think that that is that is that is very good uh a, a very good observation i mean first of all i'd go to Dan Evans' um, oh, yeah. uh, recent, recent book on the petty bourgeoisie, uh, the way that millennials and, and now Zoomers um, are sort of, are sort of split between the slight majority who go into higher education and then sort of join this um, kind of lumpen uh, sub-managerial class, never quite getting those um those management jobs never quite getting those media jobs those professional jobs those jobs in uh tech that they were promised um uh, uh, was going to be the result of taking on all that student debt um etc and on the other hand you have um uh, people the same 
age who went into trades, didn't go into um, a, a university, are, uh, are in class terms an old petty bourgeoisie, uh, not this new um, down, new petty bourgeoisie. The 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 ones who went into trades are doing a lot better than they expected, uh, and the ones who uh, went into higher education are doing a lot worse than they expected. The people who are most active on the left are going to be in that new petty bourgeoisie, um, overeducated, underemployed category, um, and the people who are the young people are more likely to um, have complex debts and mortgages, more likely to be homeowners, more likely to, um, if you're a homeowner, you're more likely to be renovating your own home, taking care of your own home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, it doesn't surprise me that loosely conservative influencers have got more pragmatic and practical advice for their audiences than the leftist ones do, because the leftist ones have probably moved to some city in the hope of uh, getting this aspirational job are probably renting probably don't anticipate um doing anything other than renting for a long time and so in a way they are the ones who are living the neoliberal nightmare much more than the dinos uh in the towns um who are probably living a, a much more sort of trad life than a lot of um the leftists are so i think it's explainable in class terms and in terms of um, behavior. And I absolutely think that Dan is right. And I've made very similar arguments myself that that old petty bourgeoisie, the young members of that old petty bourgeoisie are the crucial people that any kind of radical progressive uh, Marxist politics needs to be um, attending to and interested in and trying to um, understand the, the concerns, demands and needs of. Um, I also happen to think that uh, those people are, are more likely to have criticised COVID lockdowns. It was very bad for them financially in a way that wasn't true necessarily of the laptop job people uh, on the left, uh, and much more likely to be critical of the war in Ukraine, much more likely to have um, anti-interventionist instincts, especially uh, when they saw the direct effect on bills of small businesses, etc., before um, anybody else did. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that's, that, that that kind of connection to the material and that connection to the pragmatic is all very true. Incidentally, it may be an example of Mark Fisher's slightly bad influence on the left that, uh, of course, he taught us to not think of psycho you know, mental problems and so on as individual problems, but instead to see them as structural. People were depressed because of austerity, because of capitalist realism, neoliberalism, etc. And it was some in some way a kind of disgusting insult to say that individuals should have personal responsibility and pursue their own flourishing and uh, and and their own um psychological problems. Yeah, of course I admired Fisher's point and he was right when he was making it. But think of how that inoculated the left from that huge industry of self-help content books etc that jordan peterson was so able to with very limited talent stride in and seize um every time someone like that comes along somebody will say oh we need a jordan peterson of the left we need this or that of the left but there are quite there are quite structural intellectual reasons why we never do produce that because ultimately we're highly suspicious of 
the Robinson Crusoes of the world were highly suspicious of home, home ownership, highly suspicious of um, nuclear families, highly suspicious of, um, of, of, of having a go yourself. Um, you know, not, not for bad political reasons, but ultimately it is quite a self, self-defeating blind spot to have cultivated so much. I agree with that. I think people should be able to, yeah, absolutely. I agree with entirely uh, that, yeah. And uh, I think that the left's aversion to hobe ownership and family and stuff is, is a huge part of where it's gone wrong and so on. And it's aversion yeah, to tradition, uh, uh, I guess. I mean, and, and the fact that there's thousands of years of tradition of people coping with life. And this is why psychoanalysis appeals to me politically, because psychoanalysis explains how we're fucked anyway. We're fraught with the problems of human society. It's not it's not all because of, you know, contemporary it's not all because of Michael Gove or something. It's it's because mm-hmm. you know, humans live in a certain way and and there are there are traumas and, and problems involved with that kind of life and living that life and the aversion traditionalism yeah. that the left has has become a problem for me i think yeah which isn't to say that there isn't a utopianism of the right as well that goes right back to the, the start of conservatism and, and edmund burke um i mean just think of how the the sort of um the the elements of the the sort of intellectual end of the trump right the american conservative um our comrades at the american conservative as i like to say um th- how they responded to the um the overruling of roe roe v wade what was their argument if we make abortion illegal that means that people start taking sexual responsibility that means that we go back to marrying our childhood sweethearts that means that we get the white picket fence christian world of the future that is just as utopian as anything that sophie lewis comes up with um and uh you know they have their fantasy you know the trad uh people have their own like fantasy cultural fixes that are, are just as hopeless in the face of um unstoppable material economic uh, uh forces as the left's fantasies are um but that that's just a sort of um that's just an in brackets uh, uh, really, the, the the main point is that, yeah, okay, if we were going to have Corbyn and Bernie as the new Atlantic um, alliance, um, then okay, abolish the family. If what you mean by that is people have free time to, you know, share caring responsibilities, and we get to look after our kids to, together, and they get to flourish together, by all means, defund the police, if that means gold star mental health therapy for everyone and total economic equality so we no longer um have any excuse for treating um poor populations um like um uh, uh, uh you know they need to be um policed in this way for as long as you were going to have that new leftist kind of form of governance then i was okay with hearing it out but we're not having that kind of leftist governance and so abolish the family is going to mean you have to work such crazy hours that you never see your kids abolish the family is going to mean that you are never going to have a family because you can't afford it it's going to mean that um you know our, our, our kind of queer identities of the future are entirely decided on the balance sheets of Pfizer. uh defund the police is going to mean their replacement by private security firms for those who can afford it um 
a Mad Max world for everybody else. Utopianism um, is all very well uh, for as long as you're going to be the one who's going to be administering the utopia. As soon as it's going to be your political rivals or enemies or you know just the forces of capitalism itself, it, uh, that that's when it spins round into dystopia.